Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to a special holiday edition of CNN Tonight on this President's Day. One man who seems to want that job, Governor Ron DeSantis, taking his war on woke show on the road today. He's going to blue states and offering police officers money to move to Florida. One person who really does not like what DeSantis is selling, Donald Trump. And Congressman George Santos gives a revealing interview tonight in which he attempts to explain his litany of lies. He says it's not about trying to trick anyone. I've been a terrible liar on, okay. the, on those subjects. And, and what, what I try to convey to the American people is I made mistakes. This wasn't about tricking anybody. We'll tell you the lie he says he regrets every day. Plus, the classic children's books, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, and James and the Giant Peach, are getting rewrites. The publisher is cutting out words like fat, ugly, and white. Is it time to update outdated books, or best to leave them alone? We're going to talk about all of that tonight. But first, let's get to today's politics. We have Mark McKinnon, former advisor to George W. Bush, and John McCain. We also have CNN's John Berman, also political analyst Natasha Alford, and former U.S. Attorney Harry Littman. Hi, guys. Great to have all of you here tonight. Hello. Great Happy President's you. Day. Thank you. You're observant. I, I am know, observant. I know yeah. that. Um, okay, Mark, let's talk about on this President's Day. Um, Ron DeSantis seems to want to be president, though he hasn't officially said that yet. So he's going to blue states, New York, Illinois, Pennsylvania. Well, he's going to Philadelphia, so blue city. Um, and he's doing something, I think, quite crafty. He's offering $5,000 to police officers to move to Florida, where he says they're battling, you know, woke. He said woke so many times. I, I mean, I lo- it's his favorite word. And so I lost count at some point. But that's, uh, I don't know. So it seems as though if whatever you want to call it, stunts or whatever it is he's doing uh, ends up working to get attention. Yeah, he's sending immigrants here and bringing cops back to Florida. And uh, he is, I think, playing uh, his strategy, building up to a presidential bid very smartly and kind of sitting back in the catbird seat um, and is in a very strong position. And part of what he's doing is coming, is, is touring the country, talking about his record in Florida on issues like crime and saying we're going to recruit police down here because police like what we're paying them, for one, but they also like what we're doing in Florida. So it's a pretty effective strategy, uh, and it's, 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 uh, for now it's working. His record on crime, John, is hard to get your arms around because um, he says that crime in Florida is at the lowest it's been in 50 years, but it's hard to double-check that because Florida cities don't report to the FBI. So we've been on the FBI website all night, because that's usually where we get our crime statistics. And only there are only two. (laughs) The FBI has only received crime statistics from two out of 757 law enforcement agencies in Florida for 2021. Well, this may shock you, but I'm not sure what Ron DeSantis was doing in New York was really about crime. (laughs) Um, I actually think it was about getting attention, as you said, Look, he is running a Republican primary right now, and it may be quite effective what he's doing in the Republican primary, which is you go to New York and tell them that they're not doing it right. You go to Philadelphia and tell them they're not doing it right. And you go to these blue states and say, hey, I'm not like you. There may come a time, though, where he's not in a Republican primary anymore. You know, it's funny, and I just thought of this as as I'm coming with you. I covered the 2000 George W. Bush campaign, and George W. Bush went to Bob Jones University, which at a certain point didn't allow interracial dating, right? 
And he came, he thought he needed to do that for a Republican primary, but boy, did he, I think, come to regret it later on. But are you saying there's something that Ron DeSantis will regret later? I think there are things that he's doing in all of this that play well in a Republican primary that may not, depending on how he does it or how far he pushes it, play as well in a general election. The woke mob actually won the Civil War, so. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? In his speech to police officers in New York, I don't know if you you listened to this full speech, but there was a clear us and them, right? They, the so-called woke people, which again is not a thing. It's something that he has created to be an umbrella term for anything that is progressive, um, don't want you to be safe. Uh, They want to release criminals into your community. So it's a very clear message that he's trying to send that he is the law and order candidate. And what was interesting is that I didn't find him to be that charismatic or, you know, interesting in terms of being able to be off the cuff in the way that Donald Trump was. But he had a long list of policies that he could point to to say, look, I not only talk it, I walk it. But as John is saying, that could backfire. Right. Uh, There was no nuance in his conversation about policing. We're looking at the story of Tyree. Nichols. And there was no acknowledgement that police can sometimes be in the wrong or that there needs to be reform. There was a total uh, complete ignoring of that. And I think that when you go to the general electorate, that's an issue that you cannot ignore. You're going to have to have something to say about it. Let's listen to a portion of what he said today. My message is if if you're disenchanted, if you if you don't think things are going to turn around wherever you are, not just in New York, wherever, uh, just know that there's a state that, that's doing it right. There's a state that, that will value your service. The reason why you have crime that has spiraled out of control in so many of these different areas is because you have politicians putting woke ideology ahead of public safety. Go ahead, Harry, your thoughts. There you go with the woke stuff. Well, look, he isn't very nuanced, I agree. But he's the guy, the one guy who can try to lay claim to, you know, uh, Trump's big sort of 32 percent. But by the same token, you have two questions with him. First, does is he just positioning himself, as John says, to maybe win the nomination and lose the general? That might be, you know, you do it one at a time and maybe he tacks left when the general comes. Second... I haven't studied him deeply, but he doesn't seem to be like Mr. Charisma. And the question is, in the open field against this is the one time that Trump seems to like enjoy himself being sort of savage in the open field. And will he, you know, cut him to ribbons or does DeSantis have the kind of, you know, poise and humor to uh, to to tack and be a good general election candidate. I think jury is out on that question. Well, he does seem to be getting under Donald Trump's skin. <laughs> I'll play for you. I mean, I'll, I'll read for you the uh, post that Donald Trump posted about this. Um, DeSantis wants to cut Social Security and Medicare. He loves losers like Jeb Bush, Paul Ryan and Karl Rove and is getting clobbered in the polls by me. DeSantis is a rhino who is trying to hide his past. What do you think about this? I mean, do, do, I, I often hear this about DeSantis. He doesn't have the charisma. He's not going to, you know, be as great on the campaign trail. I just don't know that voters are only looking for charisma. And by the way, there were a lot of people who didn't think that Donald Trump had charisma when he first splashed onto the scene. A lot scene. of people see Ron DeSantis, but with brains. And Donald Trump. Donald Trump brains. Brains. Uh, uh, yes, exactly. And um, if you... If you want to, I mean, he's got results to show. I mean, look what he's done in Florida. He has turned Republican deep red. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just a swing state for recent elections. And, and won Miami by 
double digits when when recently Hillary Clinton run that won that city by uh, double digits. So he he's doing something that's pretty remarkable for Republicans and for him to be coming out of nowhere and leading the pack substantially, except for Donald Trump, says something about and, and what he's doing is he's got his finger on that cultural pulse and this whole white woke ideology, which is really just a code for saying government's getting into your lives in a way that it never did before. And I'm going to pull it out. Is it, you think that's what it's a code for? You don't think it's like sort of dog whistly? Yeah. Yeah. But both. OK. Yeah. All right. I think it's certainly more than government. Right. Look at this whole AP course backlash. He's really tapping into something that you can't necessarily say um, you don't want to come across as a racist. Right. Uh, but really, a lot of these issues that we're talking about, we're talking about racial justice. We're talking about equality. We're talking about what matters. The idea that you can say, as Ron DeSantis, there's no educational value in an AP course, that's insulting to the entire African-American community. It's insulting to our history. So he frames it as an education issue when really it's kind of a secret message to say, you know what? That black stuff, right, this, yeah. this, this race stuff is not really that important. And the people who hear him hear him loud and clear. Yeah. I just think it's easy. I think the culture war stuff is easy. It's not, it, it's policies hard. Mm-hmm. Just going after school books, everybody understands you, you have a personal reference with school books, cops, law and order. That hits, you know, somewhere viscerally. I feel like that, that all of that stuff, will, the culture war, you know, there are networks who have made their business model based on. Yeah, he's framing it also as parental control, and this is COVID related too. Like all this stuff is happening that we didn't know about, and shouldn't parents have a say? And and that and Glenn Youngkin did, did that very effectively. You know, it's interesting though. CNN has reporting today: Jeff Zenley, Steve Conterno, and others. Though you talked about he's running against the idea of government getting too much in your lives. There are Republicans that they are hearing from who are saying that one of the things DeSantis is actually doing that might bite him also yeah. is he's actually a sort of big government, yes. in a way, cracking down on Disney, telling schools what they have to do and what they yeah. have to Telling teach. business what they can or it's they can't. It's not a very libertarian yeah. way of doing things, which there are some Republicans who that orthodoxy still appeals to, though less than... He wants to be a winner, right? Yeah. Same as Trump. Yeah, but by the way, I've talked about this before. I'm so turned around with cancel culture. Ron DeSantis is canceling curriculum that he doesn't personally like, but he doesn't call that cancel culture, exactly. you know? And there are parents who will be upset that AP classes, period, he's trying to cancel them. Not just African-American studies. He's saying get rid of AP. Because he's Don't... angry with the college Exactly, board. and it's a, it's a politics of punishment and heavy-handedness that is going to actually backfire in ways that I don't think he's thinking through. One last thing. This is what Mayor Adams of New York said upon Governor DeSantis' arrival in New York. Welcome to New York City, Governor Ron DeSantis, a place where we don't ban books, discriminate against LGBTQ neighbors, use asylum seekers as props, or let the government stand between a woman and healthcare. We're happy to teach you something about values while you're here. So everybody taking a political That's where the wins come in the general election. Okay, folks, thank you very much. Uh, Stick around, because truth-challenged Congressman George Santos is trying to explain himself tonight. Why all the lies, George? We'll play for you how he justifies his various bits. George Santos likes TV cameras, even when he knows he'll be asked to explain his litany of lies. Tonight, in an hour-long interview with Piers Morgan, Santos was confronted about some of those lies, starting with the one about graduating from college. 
What, what's the simple explanation for why you met? Why would you lie about something like that? Expectation on society, the pressure, couldn't afford it. Uh, decided I wanted to run for office, although I had built a very credible business career. And I just didn't have that part of my biography that I could not give anything. Did you not think that you'd be cool? You know, I just went with it. I, I didn't think, I mean, if you're going to make up a lie, are you thinking at all? I just think it was a stupid decision in my part. Very stupid decision that I regret every day. So he has regret about it. Back with me, Mark McKinnon, John Berman, Natasha Alford, and Harry Littman. John, you lie about going to Harvard. Um, <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> just kidding. George Santos was my roommate. <laughs> yeah, he thinks so. We totally were on the volleyball so. team yeah. together, right? He thinks yeah. so. I, you're gonna, are you annoyed with me for playing more George Santos? Are you one of the people who's like, why are we giving this guy airtime? Um, Look, it's fascinating. No, but I, I think so, too. I, I think it's fascinating. It's mesmerizing in some way. You know, but he's like a lying liar who lies. <laughs> and I get that. I don't know what he could have said here that would have changed anyone's view of him. That's not to say, though, that I didn't find it interesting watching him try to weave this web. Well, this we had a, a really unique new defense today in this interview, which is, well, I got away with it before. That was cr- that was uh, that was bizarre. He, right? said, he said, "You know, why'd you do it in 2022? Because I, I, I did it in 2020. No one cared." That's interesting. And I'm a terrible liar. That's the news. Yeah, I'm yeah. a pretty good liar, actually. Prolific but, and but imaginative. He's, he's caught yeah. all the time, so yeah. that makes him yeah. not a good liar. Yeah. He's yeah. caught constantly. And this well, appeals to ethos, like yeah. emotion, right? Like it's society placed this pressure on me to go to college, and I couldn't do it, so I just I was forced to. It's so interesting how he's trying to play on emotions. Yet again, another example of the like intentional manipulation. Well, he's such a great foil for the Democrats to have him there. And the Republicans, you know, <laughs> they have to keep defending him. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. But we are becoming a little desensitized to it. But the reason that we keep playing it is that it is me- when you... Okay, his friends say that he's a pathological liar. And you just don't meet... Those are his path- friends. Those are his friends. <laughs> and his former roommates. So you just don't come into contact with a pathological liar that often. And when you do, it is a little mesmerizing. So here he is. Again, this is about lying about his mother having been in the World Trade Center on 9-11. I won't debate my mother's um, life as she's passed in mm. 16. And I think it's, it's quite unsensitive for everybody to want to rehash my mother's legacy. Um, well, well, OK, but hang on. Here's what I would say to that. They're only doing that because you put this on your campaign website. But, but specifically on the point of why nobody can find any evidence that your mother worked at the World Trade Center at all, ever, could you just got this wrong? I mean, are you telling me that I got wrong what my mother told me? I don't know. Is it possible she misled you? I don't believe so. She, she wasn't one to mislead me. Natasha? Oh, Allison, you're putting me in the hot seat. Yeah, because I think that is, again, Ooh. as you said, like the, the pathos or the ethos thing, like yeah. of playing like, so now you're calling my mother a liar. Right, right. And, and again, it shows the skill and the regularity in which he does this. Um, I, it's obviously, you know, really uncomfortable when you're talking about a personal relationship, someone who is not here. But if he did lie about that, again, how egregious, how insulting to families who did lose someone on 9-11... This is this is going to be hard to watch him in office continuing to do this. Re-election is going to be pretty nasty. I think he's audacious enough to run again. I think, oh, he, a, I think so. He's announced, I think he's announcing that he is. I think yes. there's going to be a criminal uh, referral here of some kind that on, on his tax stuff for the fundraising schemes or something that's going to get him and get him out of. So country. I totally agree with you. And he's got seven different prosecutors' offices 
um, uh, investigated. Is that right? Seven? Yeah. But what's so fascinating to me, I think that really is the word. They are separate tracks. He could get convicted. He could be in jail. That doesn't get him out of Congress. Somebody ran for president in 1920 from jail. Yeah, so it would have to be a political solution, only if two-thirds actually vote him out. But I do think at that point... That would give him the brash McCarthy, who, by the way, seems to have known about some of this, at least that's been the the reporting says to him, you know, time to go. Well, I guess this is a little bit different because his um, constituents seem disgusted with him. Oh, they are. I mean, oh, yeah, eighty percent. Right? I mean, they're embarrassed. Yes, but you know there are Trump supporters who listen to his lies and believe them. His, somehow, George Santos's uh, constituents are it's feel. It's a Democratic duped. leaning district that that he, it was remarkable that he won at this time to begin with. It's hard to see how that fluke would happen again. It's hard to see how the Republicans would allow him to be nominated. Again, if he if he does end up in court, or he could defend himself with his law degree, though, right? I mean, <laughs> no problem. Okay, here's here's another example. This is where he is confronted about yeah. saying that his grandparents uh, were in the Holocaust and that he was mm. Jewish. This is the one that I I'll battle to my grave uh, mm-hmm. to the point that I've already ordered um, those DNA test kits and I've done four of them so far, and I'm just waiting for their returns. Uh, and I'm very curious to share those with everybody because I grew up with, with the, the story was my grandfather was born in Ukraine when it was part of the Soviet Union, migrated to Belgium, met my grandmother in, the four, in 1940 or 1941. They fled to Brazil where they falsified a lot of their documents to claim they were born there. Now, look, we're talking about a time in history where this was a very common occurrence in the name of survival. Okay, he's waiting for the DNA results. We're going to get the DNA results when we get Donald Trump's audits on his <laughs> tax returns. <laughs> Which, by the way, George Santos will do. He will do the audit. Yeah. And in this case, yeah. tell us a story that we can't verify, right? Because you're saying that, you know, the information was changed. It was common. There's nothing we can do about it. We'll never know the truth with him. Um, all right. Well, Mark, this seems like a good segue to the circus. Uh, so tell us about what we need to know about this season. Well, never lack of material. You know, when we first got the assignment, I thought there'd be weeks where we just wouldn't have enough. Over 100 episodes now. We're going to start our eighth season Sunday night. And every week is, what are we going to cut? What are we going to cut? And four days ago, we didn't know where we were going to be. And now John Heilman's in Poland with the president. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's great having a front row seat because it is uh, the greatest political show on earth, American politics. That's so great. Everybody should tune in to Showtime's The Circus. Thank you all very much. Great conversation. Okay, President Biden goes into an active war zone. Former Defense Secretary Cohen is going to tell us how risky that was. President Biden making a surprise visit to the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv today, walking through the streets to the sounds of air raid sirens. Biden's show of solidarity ended with his message to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. As you know, Mr. President, I said to you in the beginning, he's counting on us not sticking together. He was counting on the inability to keep NATO united. He was counting on us not to be able to bring in others on the side of Ukraine. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. 
Joining me now, former Defense Secretary William Cohen. Secretary, thanks so much for being here. This is historic. It's the first time that a U.S. president has gone into an active war zone that the U.S. military does not have control over. And so how risky was this? Uh, I think very risky. It was uh, it was bold. Uh, it was brave on his part. And against all odds, um, it was successful. So I have to give the, the Biden administration really high marks how they were able to keep this plan and the long-term planning under wraps from anyone understanding that this is going to take place. So I think it was very risky. Uh, again, he, he pulled it off quite successfully. And as a result, um, the Ukrainian people feel even more inspired to continue to wage the war they're fighting. And what does go into the planning of a trip like this? Well, you know, I wear a digital watch, but imagine a Swiss watch. Uh, all the intricate parts uh, that uh, allow that watch to turn and to integrate with every other conceivable part, that's what goes into a presidential planning. For example, uh, assuming we land uh, in, um, in Poland, assuming we get on a train, what if something were to go wrong on the train? What if it were to derail, and we've seen our own derailments here in the United States, where would the president be taken? Would he be hurt? Were there hospitals nearby? Every contingency has to be planned so that his life is protected at all costs. So those kind of details are, um, uh, are part of any presidential trip. When we're in charge, so to speak, and we have control of the airspace and we have control of the ground, then it becomes a little bit easier. But even here in the United States, here in Washington, the amount of planning that goes into moving the president is extraordinary. I was so interested to read that they had to or they felt they should alert Russia before mm -hmm. he got there for deconfliction purposes. I mean, it makes total sense, but I, I just would have thought that it had to be a surprise for Russia. But no, in fact, it's the opposite. Well, in this particular case, it was really important. Uh, they're not asking permission for President Biden to go in uh, to uh, pay a visit to Kiev. They're telling the Russians we're coming. The president is coming. Therefore, make sure you don't fire on the Capitol, because if you do and you assassinate an American president visiting uh, our uh, ally, uh, as such not NATO, but an ally and a great one, and then you will run the risk of starting World War III. So I think you have to send the signal. We're not asking permission. We're telling you, make sure no one fires upon the Capitol. But that raises another issue. What if that message doesn't come down from Moscow? To the people on the ground and they just see uh, another attempt to fire another uh, round of artillery into uh, into Kiev and possibly injure certainly President Zelensky, but also uh, President Biden. It's uh, that's a risk that is always there. Hmm. Um, so today, uh, President Biden announced another half a billion dollars in new aid, an assortment of new military equipment, artillery ammunition, um, javelins, howitzers. So what impact will these have? Well, I think these weapon systems will have a great impact on the, on the ground. It'll allow the Ukrainian forces to not only defend themselves, but to go after the Russians on the ground and take back more territory. Um, right now, as everyone has noted, they're running out of ammunition, and we are not in a position with the kind of industrial production capability we have of feeding as much ammunition as they need. So getting more ammunition as quickly as we can is really important. The other issue is um, when they're looking for the big uh, ticket items like uh, aircraft F-16, long range artillery, uh, there's a whole package of training that has to go with that. My own view is I would start training the uh, uh, Ukrainians now, just training them in case we decide to go forward. 
after they've demonstrated through all that training they're capable of handling the intricacy, not just flying the plane, but also of how to manage the, uh, the uh, logistical train that goes with sophisticated aircraft, et cetera. So I think the Biden administration is doing it just right now. But I think if we see the Russians start to push the Ukrainians back and they look like they might be losing ground, I think the cry is going to be give them more. They need this kind of equipment now to push the Russians back. And just one final point. I, I think that the United States will continue to fund Ukraine, as long as we see they're able to continue doing what they're doing. If it looks as if they're losing, then I think the sentiment in this country, exacerbated by some on the right uh, who are sympathetic to Putin, will say, time to pull back, time to um, renew or review their, their uh, budgets. So I think that's the danger. That's why you have to go full force this year and now with whatever we can afford to give them and do I have one final point for you also, the China factor. Um, so China's top diplomat is expected in Moscow soon amid these concerns that China could be increasing their support for Russia. So how, would, how does that change the whole equation? I think we have to understand that um, we can't dictate to China to tell them you can, you can't do this. And I think it's a mistake for us to be drawing publicly red lines. I think if the Chinese were to do this, it would certainly be counterproductive. It certainly would impair our relationship was at the lowest level in recent years even more. So I think we need to go behind uh, and meet uh, with the, uh, the President Xi. And I think uh, President Biden ought to try to schedule something in the during the course of this year to make sure we don't go off track completely with the Chinese. It's a big country, important country, and a powerful country. And we need to make sure we're still talking to them uh, even as we have these differences with them. Uh, otherwise, um, it could get very dangerous for the rest of the world. Uh, former Secretary William Cohen, thank you. Always appreciate talking to you. Okay, now to this. Should classic children's books be updated to take out offensive or out-of-date words? Should the word fat be omitted? How about the word white? We take on the case of rewriting Roald Dahl. Next. Change is coming to Roald Dahl's classic children's books. Dahl's estate and publisher making hundreds of changes to some of Dahl's most popular books, including The Witches, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and James and the Giant Peach. The revisions were made by sensitivity readers from the organization called Inclusive Minds. It's described as a collective of people who are passionate about inclusion, diversity, equality, and accessibility in children's literature. Here are a few examples. In the book, The Witches, one line was changed from you must be mad, woman, to you must be out of your mind. In the book, Mr. Fantastic Fox, the character Bunce is no longer described as, quote, the little pot-bellied dwarf. Now he's just Bunce. <laughs> and in Charlie the Chocolate thank you for that, Harry. And in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the character Augustus Gloop is no longer described as fat. Instead, he's only described as enormous. The changes are getting some serious pushback, including from author Salman Rushdie, who called it, quote, absurd censorship. Back with me now, Mark McKinnon, John Berman, Natasha Alford, and Harry Lippman. And Natasha, there's every single night I call upon your former teaching <laughs> skills. You are the only one of us who I believe used to be a teacher here. And has written a children's book. Yes, and has written a children's Thank book. You. you are the perfect guest to have. So are these, I mean, look, I, I, what, part of what they say they're doing is, is relevance. They want the books to be relevant to kids today, mm -hmm. not to be a timepiece necessarily from like Shakespeare. You know, we 
they're not updating Shakespeare. We accept that that is what it is. But they want kids to totally be able to relate to it. So saying something, I think it's innocuous, you must be mad, woman. My kids don't know that mad means you must be out of your mind. Mm -hmm. So they're updating Mm -hmm. it. Is this okay or not okay? I just, I want a world in which we can have conversations about why certain words may be offensive, why certain words may not be inclusive without actually changing an author's words. Um, He's not here to approve these changes. We know that his estate has spoken about the changes that are being made, but that is part of what art is, right? And even thinking about my children's book, your book that you're working on, Those are your words for a reason. And so if a new generation comes along, I'd like for there to be a conversation. That can also be a weapon, right, if, you know, someone uh, who maybe I don't agree with takes control and all of a sudden has the authority to change my words and what I meant. So, again, I like the idea of having conversations about the impact. I don't think we need to change the author's words to do that. All right. 100%. I mean, this is just me as a 10-year-old, not as a lawyer, but it's Roald Dahl. He's supposed to be terrible, terrible man, yes, but a great writer in his own way. He's supposed to be acerbic. He's supposed to be scary, uh, you know, and taking, sanding him down. I mean, other times where we expurgate words or even little strains, it's one thing. This this is who Roald Dahl is. It's like peanut M&Ms without the peanuts. He, this is very much, you know, taking Roald Dahl and just de-dolling him. I think it's terrible. <laughs> like the, the problem is where does it stop, right? And, you know, would you rather be called enormous than fat? <laughs> and I think the way to handle... Big boned. Rabelaisian. I think the way to handle it is to handle it with an editor's note or something at the beginning of a book to say... You may find some of these words offensive. It was a different time. But just put it in context. Yeah. Uh, rather just leave than, it be. Yeah. Look, I, I think with, starting with Natasha said, I don't think there's anything wrong with teaching. Why are we so afraid of teaching what these words mean and how they're different now? One of the things I would like taught when teaching Raul Dahl is that he was a virulent anti-Semite. Yeah, or to say, to say that in the introduction, to say yeah, yeah. he was racist, he but was misogynist, whatever one it might thing be. Here, I do, the idea that nothing can ever be changed I think we've come to this place. Oh, you can't change anything. You can't. You know, Agatha Christie, there's a book. One of her most famous books is And Then There Was One. But you all may know it better from when it was called Ten Ten Little Little Indians, Indians, which is what they made the movie about. It was originally published, and I'm not going to say it here, it was Ten Little N-Words. That was the original title of the book. And the island it took place on was N-Word Island. This is one of Agatha Christie's most famous books. But they changed it. They changed it before 1940 because it was too offensive then. Then they changed it from 10 little. Stuff can get changed, and it's not the end-all, be-all. This, with the words that they're changing here, you know, maybe And then they even changed it to, and then there was none. Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) I would want to know that about that author, right? Right. Her original. I would want to know that. I don't want it packaged up in a nice bow so I can accept the story and forget that there was racist intent in in what she wrote, if there was. And to John's point... Roald Dahl himself changed things in some of his books when it was too offensive. When even he realized, I am not sure was, what would qualify was, well, as too offensive. Let me play for him. you because we all know the Oompa Loompas. The Oompa Loompas <laughs> were not originally these little orange creatures with green hair. Uh, I learned today they started originally being written as quote black pygmies from the deepest, darkest parts of the African jungle. So he realized at some point. Oh, that's not right. And he changed them to the Oompa Loompas, which are 
Orange Dwarfs. Sweet. <laughs> I mean, Orange Dwarfs, but, but so, so much better. I mean, so much me- more, so memorable. But even they, I think, are being stricken in some cases from some productions. The, the culture wars right now are frustrating because there will be someone on the right who takes this example and says, look, they're being ridiculous, those people on the left. And, and also, at the same time, we'll go out of their way to ban books and say, oh, but we can't have these books that talk about, you know, a young person struggling with their sexuality, uh, like George Johnson's All Boys Aren't Blue. Like, it's just an insane time right that now. That is such a great point, Natasha. As I was saying before about cancel culture, I'm so twisted up with cancel culture, I don't know who's canceling whom anymore. Because you're right. The same people who say, oh, these are snowflakes, they can't handle the word snow, uh, they can't handle the word fat, they can't handle the word ugly, one of the things that they're changing. But there are books, as we all know, in Florida public schools that have been taken out of classrooms for a, a host of reasons because whatever, who, whoever this is, isn't comfortable with the depiction of something. You know what was fascinating? The African-American Policy Forum, they are doing something where they've done something called a freedom tour where they go around into communities with the banned books and they encourage young people to read. And you would be surprised the books on this list beautiful children's books about diversity, about culture, about unknown stories, that now people have to fight to tell those stories. That, to me, is emblematic of the best of America, the ways in which we resist and we rally. But what a sad time that we even have to think about silencing those voices. So, and and yeah. as if banning the books would work. If I'm a 10-year-old kid and you ban a yeah. book, you guarantee yeah. I'm going to find that <laughs> yeah. book. And, and it won't be in a library. There's plenty of places to find it. Yeah. So is there any word that should be stricken? In other words, that these are all... That's what I'm saying. I mean, I don't think you can be absolutist about this. I don't think you can just say, oh, we should never change anything no matter what. I think, you know... But no one's saying that about Dahl. I agree with you. I'm not so sure. Yeah, but, I mean... No, it, because this is his whole text. This is who he is as a writer. You'd have to really, you know, snip out every... He, he is a writer designed to make you afraid. He's acerbic. He's, he is a misanthrope, but that's the kind of writer he is. It's not just... Your Agatha Christie example, which is, a, which is a good one, but it's just a different mm-hmm. kind of case, I'm saying. Here's Roald Dahl's yeah. company statement on the changes. We want to ensure that Roald Dahl's wonderful stories and characters continue to be enjoyed by all children today. When publishing new print runs out of books written years ago, it is not unusual to review the language used alongside updating other details, including a book's cover and page layout. Our guiding principle throughout has been to maintain the storylines, characters, and the irreverence and sharp-edged spirit of the original text. Any changes may have been small and carefully considered. Did you know that? It's not unusual but for like, them to here, change I did. I read the statement from the estate. Yeah. Yes. But I'm surprised. Yeah. I, too, am surprised because I did not know that they can tamper with authors' words. And I'm not like sure that, you, yeah. I mean, you, they're really carefully chosen. Mm-hmm. Like, you labor over but, each sentence. Absolutely. But here's another example. In some cases, some new lines were added in the witches, a paragraph that explains that the witches are, ha- are bald underneath their wigs has a new sentence. There are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. That's no stop. That's, that's in the new in book. Yeah. yeah, that's added to the that's, to the they text. Added. They didn't change. The teacher it. could say that outside. The teacher can say yeah. that. in a lesson. It doesn't have to be in the book. I was in the play Witches actually. <laughs> Random <laughs> side note. Did you wear a bald wig? <laughs> I had a wig, and I had a wig, and there was no shame in that. People, come on. It's not just the, it's not the offensive stuff. I remember reading him get scared all of a sudden. You realize, oh man, he's he's really twisting you around. That's a good experience for a kid to have. I think. All right, friends, thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Wait till you get a load of this next story. Did you ever play a game at the boardwalk or amusement park and ask yourself, why can't I win? Why can't I knock these bottles down or get that ball in the hoop? It turns out we now know the reason. 
We'll show you. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it so hard to win a stuffed teddy bear on the Jersey Shore boardwalk? I know I have. Finally, tonight, an answer. New Jersey's attorney general cracking down on one operator of basketball games on the boardwalk in the very place I misspent much of my youth, Wildwood and North Wildwood. They allege the operator overinflates the balls, making them bounce off the rim instead of going into the basket. The AG saying in a statement, quote, every person who plays an amusement game in the state of New Jersey deserves a fair shot at winning a prize. I'm back with Mark, John, Natasha and Harry. Finally, you guys, it's not just my lack of athleticism that didn't allow me to win this stuff, Dave. Now we know the answer, John. We always do the answer. Are you the only one? Is this like the entire state of New Jersey? You you didn't? John, no, people do pay money to try to win those teddy bears. I was surprised to learn it's regulated. I didn't know it was regulated. (laughs) Yeah, the AG's in and out. Get the government out of my rigged Wildwood sidewalk game. John, they're too big to go into the basket. You knew that? You, I figured it was rigged, but, but I, you didn't know how. I, okay, now I, I suppose I didn't know how. Oh come on! Every, the, the, the circumference is like this. A basketball <laughs> hoop is like that. Everybody knows. Well, that. It's a pretty open exactly. secret. I'm yes. from Syracuse, and we have the yeah. New York State Fair, yeah. and you just know that with the basketball hoops, chances are you're not going to win. So but did I you know why? Thought, I, I thought it was a little <laughs> tilted. I, I thought that they yeah. kind of tilted or kind of bent the hoop a little bit. That's what I thought it really? was. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought I just sucked. Well, they're not usually. You're paying for the entertainment value of losing. That's a way to think about it. I mean, I really, I want my dollar twenty-five back, Mark. I mean, that's what I've, you know, yeah. about what I've spent. But that's on. what those regulators. You know, was this the exactly. Only way the that's why you need that's, yeah. that's why you need big government. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I just find it a total revelation because some people do win those. Yeah. That's the other thing. Is it some people? You do see people walking around with the huge teddy bears. All the squirt gun games. The squirt gun games are harder to rig. So they're not rigged. No. Well, somebody wins. Everyone knows they're fair. That's why I won the squirt gun games. Yeah. Glad I know. The AG's got priorities in order for sure here. Yeah. Okay. Start start with the basketball. Thank goodness we have a lawyer on this. Tom Brady has something to do with the Yeah. See, that's where Tom Brady learned it. All right. Thank you all. All right. Meanwhile. President Biden back in Poland tonight after that unprecedented and risky and highly secretive trip to war-torn Ukraine. How's the trip playing out here? We're going to talk about that and a lot more next. President Biden wrapping up an unprecedented and risky trip to Ukraine. He wanted to show that the U.S. stands with Ukraine in the war against Russia. For all the disagreement we have in our Congress on some issues, uh, there is significant agreement on support for Ukraine. Because this is so much larger than just Ukraine. It's about freedom and democracy in Europe. It's about freedom and democracy writ large. But not all lawmakers are on board. Let's talk about it. I want to bring in Mike Broomhead, host of the Mike Broomhead Radio Show, special correspondent for Vanity Fair, Molly Jongfast, CNN political analyst Natasha Alford, and presidential historian Douglas Brinkley. He's the author of Silent Spring 
Revolution. Great to have all of you here tonight. Um, Doug, first let's just talk about the significance of this. This was this was unprecedented in that he went into an active war zone, not a U.S. controlled military zone. He just went into a war zone. Never happened before. I mean, today I've been talking some about Franklin D. Roosevelt's, you know, epic diplomacy with Churchill during World War II, but we never had a president quite do this. I mean, Eisenhower would go to Korea and say we're getting out of Korea, where you had in recent years you know, Obama going to Afghanistan or the you know Bushes visiting the troops. This was a clandestine in the middle of the wee hours, an eight-hour secret train trip to go to Kiev and, and meet Zelensky there. Uh, what it mainly is, as of tonight, is deeply symbolic of how much political capital the uh, Biden administration is putting on uniting the country on, on Ukraine. Mitch McConnell's backing him. He's got 60-some percent the American people. But there is, in conservative world, um, people wondering whether um, it's financially sustainable to support Ukraine over the coming years. That's one of their complaints about it. So, Mike, let me read some others. I knew you were in a conversation. I, well, I was. Somehow you're, and there you are, right there, ready to, to uh, tackle this. So this is uh, from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. It says, this is incredibly insulting. Today, on our President's Day, Joe Biden, the president of the U.S., chose Ukraine over America while forcing the American people to pay for Ukraine's government and war. I cannot express how much Americans hate Joe Biden. Then this uh, next one from Scott, Congressman Scott Perry, breathtaking that President Biden can show up in Ukraine to ensure their border is secure. but cannot do the same for America. And then uh, Congressman Greg Murphy. So it takes two years for Joe Biden to visit the war zone he created at our southern border. But then he goes to see another war zone he created in Ukraine. So uh, I don't think they're the majority, but how loud of a following and voice do you think they have? Well, it's a loud voice. I think part of the issue is that people are upset about the border. I live in a border state. So I think that a lot of that spills over. I think you're right about the significance of what happened there. And we, you know, if we're going to support Ukraine, we should, if you're in for a penny, in for a pound, that's my opinion. But I understand people's frustration with some things. I just don't think we should be mixing them together. It's, it's not an either or game. But I understand the frustration in people saying, you know, you're over there when we have issues over here. I just don't necessarily agree that we should have this visit was so important. I think we should look at it for what it is. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there are other Republicans who say the same thing. Uh, here's Mitch McConnell today. Uh, he says, my party's leaders overwhelmingly support a strong, involved America, a robust transatlantic alliance. Don't look at Twitter. Look at people in power. Look at me and Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Though this could be a pickle for Kevin McCarthy because everything's a pickle for Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> well, he doesn't really have the votes, right? I mean, I think that this is a good, you know, look, NATO, a strong NATO is good for peace, right? It has historically always been good for peace. And this is a lot of good political capital for Biden. The, you know, it's worked so far, right? You know, Ukraine has continued to fight back. I think that's a really good thing. I think ultimately, you know, there, Kevin McCarthy has a caucus he can't control. And so sooner or later, that's going to come after him. It's just a question of when. That was from Friday. I should mention not today from Mitch McConnell. Um, Ron DeSantis uh, today did talk about uh, what his, I guess, concern is about Ukraine. So here he is this morning. And I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into proxy war with China getting involved uh, over things like the borderlands or, or over Crimea. So I think it would behoove them to identify what is the strategic objective that they're trying to, to achieve. Uh, but just saying it's an open-ended blank check, uh, that is not acceptable. 
So, um, I mean, he may be getting ahead of himself with a proxy war with China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is this is maybe the one rare moment where Ron DeSantis is, is getting at something that I could kind of agree with. Um, and that's the, Americans pe the, the American people's understanding of when this is going to end. Uh, there is overwhelming support for Ukraine and this understanding that, you know, whatever is happening in Ukraine is something that is part of our obligation to uh, democracy. But at the same time, I think when I look at my readers at the GRIO and they comment, there is a communication issue, right? The Biden administration has not effectively communicated why um, and why money going over there can't be spent here at home for things that affect them every day. I mean, that that's disconnect. That's basically what Mike is saying about his, but, his callers in terms is, of the border. You're just saying it about the money being spent. But isn't it also when the president says we're running, we may be running low on what we might need to defend ourselves. And then the fear that China may invade Taiwan when we're at a time when we don't have enough munitions. I think you're right. If we are not explaining to, or if he is not explaining to the American people, it gives doubt. Even if they support what we're doing in Ukraine, they, they want some answers and some reassurance. What would that look like, Doug? Um, well, I think, look, FDR gave us the four freedoms. That's what we're fighting for in the world. And there's nothing more primary than the NATO alliance. After World War II, um, there was a Greek revolution. Harry Truman came in. We did the Truman Doctrine. We saved Greece from Russian uh, interference, communist government, uh, Greece's NATO, Turkey's NATO. Um, every president except Donald Trump has put the NATO alliance first. So Joe Biden isn't just president of the United States. He's also the leader now of NATO, 30 countries. And if you lose the Ukraine uh, and that if we just turn our back on that dem democratic movement there, what does it say? It's 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 again, it, we were effective in 1991. The Soviet Union broke up because the United States contained Soviet expansionism. Democrats and Republicans, Reagan and Carter, we can name them all. Um, so we must now stand forward for the um, uh, Zelensky and the Ukraine. And I think most Americans agree with that. But Biden does have to sell that uh, better. And I think this mission was an advancement of that cause that he has skin in the game by going over there with sirens running off as if it was Edward R. Murrow in London. You know? <laughs> and tomorrow he'll have that opportunity. I mean, he's giving a speech in Poland. Now, I don't know if the people who follow the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world will be listening to his speech in Poland, but he'll have that opportunity. Yeah, when, what do you want him to say? I just look at people on my side of the aisle, and it's as diverse as any other political party. It's, uh, there's extremes. But if, if I think a strong America is good for NATO, I think that's the best part of the strong America. The stronger we are, the stronger NATO is. If we are telling the world that we are go, running low on the munitions we might need to defend ourselves, that's a, that's a concern. So we have got to defeat that concern. If we're going to support Ukraine, I think we should. But then why, why aren't we giving jets? Why are we doing things in dribs and drabs? Explain a little of that without giving away the strategy. But the American people need to know that. And I think if that to the people that will, there are people that will never be satisfied. But to the people that will be, that would go a long way. Um, I just want to bring up Marjorie Taylor Greene one more time <laughs> because she's because You're really trying to pull I, I, I normally don't. I normally don't, but she is. Um, she is calling for a divorce. So let me just read this right now: Impeach Biden or give us a national divorce. We don't pay taxes to fund foreign countries' wars who are not even NATO allies. We aren't sending our sons and daughters to die for foreign borders and foreign democracy. In quotations, she says, "America is broke. Criminal and cartels reign, and you're a fool." First of all, America's not broke. 
And a lot of these states have huge surpluses. We also, they were very careful with Ukraine that no American soldiers are fighting there. So all of that is hyperbolic at best. I would say, look, this generation doesn't love endless war. And I think there's a real pushback. And Biden needs to address that. Look, if, if, you know, if Ukraine falls, Russia will be out of control and they will take, you know, whatever else is they can. And I think that most of the international community knows that. But this, you know, this generation, my generation, the generation after us, we don't like war. And, you know, a lot of us grew up during the Gulf War, which really seemed like a huge waste of life and money. And it killed a lot of really innocent Iraqis. And so I think a lot of us feel like war is really bad. And so he's got to tell us why this makes sense. Yeah, I hear you. And I think that obviously nobody likes endless war. But how can you ever tell somebody when a war is going to end? Well, there's wars of necessity. World War II, Japan declared war on us. Germany declared war on us. So we were all in it together. Now, is the Ukraine a war of choice? And what does it mean? I mean, in the, we had proxy wars during the Cold War. I mean, some people argue Korea was and Vietnam was. Maybe Korea came out OK, Vietnam not so OK. So Biden's got to make the American public understand that this is a war of necessity, that if we don't defend Western Europe at its time of, um, uh, of need, I mean, we don't care. And Ukraine now is part of the West. Unfortunately, it's not in NATO. Bill Clinton did our country a great service, in my view, by NATO enlargement when he was president when the Soviet Union collapsed. But the, we cannot leave um, you know, the Ukraine dither and bleed and die while we're just doing sloganeering here like the Georgia Congress um, woman on uh, you know, America <laughs> first. Um, we, we have to defend the, um, the Ukraine, I think, at all costs. And if, if not, we'll see what the consequences are. But China is a concern. And how are they going to, what are they going to do? And it's dangerous games going on in Europe right now. Understood. Um, So we'll see what the president says tomorrow. All right. Meanwhile, back here, imagine if a toxic train derailment left you wondering whether your town and your family has been poisoned. The people of East Palestine are outraged and they're afraid and they don't know what's going to happen. And they don't know if they can trust anyone in the government. We'll talk about all that. The people of East Palestine, Ohio, are scared. They're afraid to return to their homes, even though officials say it's safe to go back. It's been more than two weeks since that train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed. Now, a health clinic is opening there to help address residents' medical concerns. Is that enough? Back with me now, Mike Broomhead, Molly Jonkfest, Natasha Alford, and Harry Littman. Here's, I mean, we have had so many people on our air talk about how their kids are throwing up, Mm -hmm. their kids have rashes, Mm -hmm. they themselves taste battery in their mouth all day long. Here is one, uh, just another resident from East Palestine today. I did go a little too close to the area, apparently, on Thursday. I was down there with the news crew. We were kind of taking pictures of the cleanup and doing some video work and we actually did get nauseous and uh, like firsthand experience here. I was sick. I had a headache for about eight hours and got sick after that. Uh, so it's definitely a little more trying to exercise more caution and not go near the area again right now. Officials tell them it's safe to go home, Natasha. Right. And uh, doubt is everywhere, right? If you look at the response to actual officials' tweets, uh, the National Transportation Board um 
director, people are saying, this is not our reality. We don't trust you. And this is happening at a time when trust in government institutions is actually waning, right? So you have people who are going to question, um, you know, just how sincere uh, the the official statements are and whether they're just looking out for their profits. Again, this is happening in the context of deregulation. We know that, you know, although the Obama era law that uh, Trump rolled back wouldn't have prevented this particular disaster, it's still this idea that uh, you know, the American people are not being protected, that it's really about money and profit. Although that Obama-era law, if they did have breaks, these breaks in every single train car, instead of just at the front after with a train car of 126 cars, it could have slowed this down. Yes, yes. yes I mean, th- that's one of the things that they rolled back, and it's they are seeing more derailments now, Harry. Something is deeply wrong there, and we just don't know what it is. I don't think the government's purposely misleading them. It might have to do with the water checking out, but something terrible in the air. But animals are dying. Yeah. People are, It's obvious. There have been six class action suits filed, by the way, and it's going to be enormous. But I don't blame the people. I mean, you, how, it's the words of the government versus their actual feeling sick. Something's really, really wrong. It's still a mystery, but... I wouldn't go back there. Let me put yeah. it that way. Yeah. And by the way, wh- I mean, that is where your home is. It's like yeah. it, you have to go back to your home at some point. Your friends will yeah. only take you and your kids in for so long. I don't know what the people here are supposed to do. I agree with you. But let me throw a monkey wrench in this. We know we went through COVID and the questions about the vaccines and the efficacy and the arguments with the American people and the doubt in the CDC and the doubt with Dr. Fauci. This is just the same thing. Again, you're hearing from the government and they're telling you one thing and then you're finding out later that maybe that's not true. And in this case, it's your children are getting sick right now. And I don't think they believe what they're being told. That doesn't mean they can't be convinced, but they are obviously skeptical and they need answers. And I don't blame them. But I would push back about the vaccines. Like, I I would say, you're not seeing people. I mean, I think a closer parallel is 9-11. I lived near there in New York during 9-11. We were all told it was totally fine. There were a lot. There have been many, many lawsuits, people dying of mesothelioma, all sorts of cancers. I think that's a closer parallel because we haven't seen really the same kind of thing with the vaccine. But I do know there is people do not trust the government right now. Yes. And I mean, obviously, everybody has. I take all of your points because you can have the government say we we are testing and the air and the water seems completely safe. And then you are sick and you have a sore throat and your kids are throwing up. Here is what Senator Sherrod Brown said today about um, people feeling skeptical. They're right to be skeptical. The EPA administrator, when I was there, uh, both the state and the federal EPA um, administrators said that, um, but when you return to your home, we think the water's safe, but when you return to your home, you should be tested again uh, for your water and your soil and your air, not to mention those that have their own wells. I mean, okay, everybody has to test all the time. How are you supposed to do that? Why would you go back if you weren't certain it was safe? That's the other question. Would you take your kids back and drink the water and then say you still have to test the water again? What concerns me about this is that there's someone who's going to exploit this situation, and it's Donald Trump. Right. He has a trip planned, and you know exactly when he gets there, he's going to go off the cuff, not going to follow anything on any cue cards, and use this as a moment to... I think blast the Biden administration. But I just think Donald Trump has run on deregulation. His whole thing was like every day we take away another useless deregulation. 
Well, if we had a super regulated, you know, transit system, which we should have. And remember, this company has had a lot of lobbyists. There was a lot of reporting today about the millions of dollars they spent on lobbyists. So if we had had more legislation. Yeah. yeah. So so that, you know, is is all true. And it's one thing to say what the government might be doing. Obviously, the the uh, railroad is, you know, not to be trusted. But, you know, just something has to has to give here. I think the flip side of Trump, somebody's going to die or somebody's going to get really sick. And then the whole situation, I think, in East Palestine will just change. They'll, they'll really be deep distressed and people will, what, you know, will try to leave. Well, we're staying on it every day with updates yeah. because this is not going away. Meanwhile, this story, an Alabama man allegedly freezes to death inside a county jail. How does that happen? His family is demanding answers and filing a lawsuit. So up next, we're going to talk to that man's sister. How did a 33-year-old Alabama man end up allegedly frozen to death inside a county jail last month? The family of Anthony Mitchell accuses the Walker County Sheriff's Office of allegedly committing one of the most appalling cases of jail abuse the country has ever seen. In a lawsuit, the family says that Mitchell died, quote, likely by being placed in a restraint chair in the jail's kitchen walk-in freezer or similar frigid environment and left there for hours, end quote. Initially, police said that Anthony Mitchell was taken to a hospital for further evaluation and that he was, quote, alert and conscious when he left the jail. But then whistleblower video tells a different story. We warn you, this video we're about to play is graphic and disturbing. You can see two corrections officers here carrying Mitchell's limp, possibly lifeless body as it comes out of the door here to their police car. Walker County Sheriff's Office is now under investigation as a result of this. In a statement to WIAT, a lawyer for the Sheriff's Office says, quote, as is routine, the Walker County Sheriff's Office immediately contacted the State Bureau of Investigation to investigate and independently determine the facts surrounding Mr. Mitchell's death. This investigation is in its early stages and expected to continue for some time. The Sheriff's Office is fully cooperating with this investigation in order to present a fact-driven response. The Sheriff's Office will await the conclusion of the investigation. Karen Kelly, the whistleblower and former corrections officer who released that clip, filing her own lawsuit. She alleges that she was fired for sharing that video of the incident. Joining me now is Anthony Mitchell's sister, Miranda Mitchell Gutzmer, along with the attorneys for the Mitchell family, John Goldfarb and Will Smith. Folks, thank you very much for being here. We're sorry uh, that you're going through all of this, Miranda. Miranda, can you just tell us, what did the sheriff's office and the jail originally tell you about what happened to your brother? They honestly didn't give a lot of information to our family. Um, One of the officers, I believe TJ Armstrong, called my cousin, not even my mother, and told her to go to the hospital because his organs were shutting down. And so when my mother arrived there, she was told, oh, he looked a little off this morning and we thought he needed some fluids. And by the time she arrived, he was pretty much gone. Miranda, I'm sorry. I'm sorry at how hard this is for you and your whole family. Had you seen that video before that we just played? 
I had, and um, it, it does not get easier each time I've seen it, even though um, I've watched it several times trying to reason as to why someone would do that. It doesn't make sense. It just does not make sense why any human being would be treated that way. How did you find out that that video existed? After they told you some story about, oh, he seems to be in distress, uh, his organs may be shutting down. How did you find out that this video of the truth of the situation existed? I was just sitting at home uh, about a week after my brother had passed and I received a Facebook message from someone, I won't share her name for her privacy. And she said, we think you need to see this. And she sent me the video. And I never would have guessed what it was going to be when I opened it. And then I saw what we believe is my brother's lifeless body being carried. Just like a piece of trash. And set on the concrete ground with so little care. And then thrown into the back of a police cruiser. And it was nothing like they had told us. He wasn't alert nor conscious. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we wouldn't, you wouldn't know what the truth was of how he left the county jail, nor would any of us had that video, um, had the whistleblower not released that video. Mr. Goldfarb, the doctor who examined Tony said that he died of hypothermia. His body was apparently 72 degrees at the hospital. How does the sheriff's office explain that? They haven't commented on it yet. And there's only one way that his body temperature could reach that. It's either being placed in a freezer or in a cooler. There's other locations that, are, that has, have coolers there. Um, we also know that he was left on the cement floor for five hours, uh, wet, cold cement floor, naked. So uh, I don't think his body temperature could have gotten there by just being naked on the floor. So that's why we've heard, we speculate that it was the freezer. And we've heard many other people tell us that they have also been placed in a cooler or a freezer in that jail. Apparently, it's some type of uh, torture device that we use. Uh, Mr. S- Mr. Smith, what about that? Why are, uh, I mean, I don't even want to call them inmates in this county jail because they're not yet adjudicated. They're, they're not yet convicted. Why would they be placed in the freezer? There's no reasonable explanation for that. The only thing that we can say looking at it is pure sadism. Um, and we have, unfortunately, not direct evidence of him being put in the freezer yet. But what we do have are videos taken over an interval of five hours from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. of him lying on the floor, dying, and his, his chances of, of living just slipping away as, as guards come to look, as they laugh. Um, and, and that's what's really shocking. It's like so many of these situations recently where you're watching the video and you, you want to shout, help him, and nobody does. Miranda, all of this started because of a mental health wellness check from 
police. As I understand it, one of your relatives was worried about your brother. They called the police for help. And this is what ended up happening. What was going on with your brother before this? So my brother has struggled with addiction in the past, and it really took a turn after my father passed away in August. Um, You know, my dad was my brother's best friend and his biggest supporter and was always there for him. He lost him, and that was really hard for my brother. And so his addiction really took hold of him, and he spiraled, and we, you know, tried to help as much as we could offering him, you know, rehab, giving him, you know, whatever resource we could. And anyone who's ever loved an addict knows how complicated and hard that is because you can only do so much. They have to accept the help. And then it got to this point where my cousin Steve said that he was just completely in a stage of psychosis and wasn't speaking, you know, clearly and didn't seem tethered to reality. And that's when he made the call to try to get him help. Initially, he called the investigator's office directly in hopes to avoid a 911 call. And then he was left no option when they didn't answer. And it was the only thing that seemed like a chance to get him help before he might hurt himself or others. I mean, who else do you call in an emergency? Of course. I mean, of course, that's what we all would do. And nobody would expect their loved one who's struggling with addiction to end up somehow um, with a body temperature of 72 degrees and dying in the, in the county jail as a result of all of that. Well, Miranda, um, gentlemen, thank you very much for sharing the story. We know you will get to the bottom of it. We will continue to follow it. And uh, please keep us posted on what happens next with this story. Thank you. Take care, Miranda. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Once upon a time, there was a beloved bear named Winnie the Pooh. Children loved him so much, they introduced him to their own children. But then, deep in the woods, something went very, very wrong and a bloody slasher film was born. Brace yourself, here's a clip. Christopher, we need to leave, now. I really need to find out what's happened here, okay? Yep, that's the new movie, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. <clears throat> I'm choking on it. <laughs> Joining me now, writer, executive producer, director, Reese Frake, Waterfield, and executive producer, Scott Jeffrey. Which one of you is the deranged, sick <laughs> mind that thought this was going to be a great idea? It was both of us. <laughs> yeah, both, yeah. <laughs> you both liked the idea, Reese, of turning... Winnie the Pooh into a homicidal maniac. Yeah, when we saw the rights, which came out in um, approximately January 2022, uh, we got really excited, wouldn't we? We had a big like, glimmer yeah. of uh, glimmer in our eyes, and yeah, we had to give him a knife. So, <laughs> yep. I mean, it's so scary. It's so gross. And so, I mean, 
just explain to me your thought process for a minute here. Um, let, I'll start with you, Reese. Like, this is a beloved children's book. And so who are you hoping the audience is? So, yeah, this definitely isn't for kids. This is for <laughs> adults. So everyone who kind of grew up on Winnie the Pooh when they were younger. Um, and, you know, fast forward 20 years, now you've got this version. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Scott, Piglet, yeah. you couldn't leave Piglet alone? <laughs> I mean, like, he's up for grabs as well. And, you know, he's been so lovely and kind for so long. Why not see him a bit deranged as well, you know? Why not Tigger? He's not in the public Tigger. domain yet. Yeah, not, not <laughs> yet. But you have Tigger up your sleeve? Is, are you going to do something very bad to Tigger soon? I don't know. Reese. what do you reckon? Yeah, Tigger's coming. We're, um, you're right, he was, he's not in the public domain yet, but he will be, and we're already kind of getting ideas on what to do with him. So. Guys, yeah, yeah. it's so creepy, it's so awful. I mean, part of it is hilarious because it's the, mm-hmm. the juxtaposition of Winnie the Pooh and this slasher film, but part of it is so disturbing. I mean, did, you, did it give you, uh, Reese, any pause that you were, no pun intended, did, did it give you any pause that you were going to, you know, ruin Winnie the Pooh for the next generation? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, no? Not, not Not a second. How about you, Scott? I, I like. I think like you know. There's been that version of Winnie for so long, and now this is a different version of Winnie for people like me and Reese that just love horror movies. And if you don't like it, you don't need to watch it. There's no gun to anyone's head. Like you know, it, it doesn't need to exist to you if you don't like horror. But if you do like horror, it very much exists. There's no gun to anybody's <laughs> head, but you are doing a lot of bloody things. Here's one yeah. more clip that I'll play for the viewers. Why are you doing this? <laughs> We used to be friends. Why are you doing this, please? <laughs> Piglet, I, I, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know any of this would happen. I, I thought you'd be okay without me. Why are you doing this? We used to be friends. Why? Stop. <laughs> Scott, it's so creepy. And so just tell us the process of making it. I mean... Were you laughing? Were people freaked out? What was it like coming up with yeah. the costumes? All of that. When, when, you, when you're on set, Reese is just sat behind the monitor giggling the entire time. <laughs> um, and yeah, Reese, you had some crazy ideas with this, didn't you? With um, some yeah. situations in a pool, for example. Yeah, we basically, um, when, it was, when we realised it went in the public domain in February 2022, um, we yeah. have like a, a partner we work with called ITN Studios. Um, and we were both, we all just got really excited, didn't we, and eager, um, and we yeah. started brainstorming, and we were like, we want to make him a bit like Michael Myers, and make him massive, give him a knife, Piglet's got a sledgehammer, so, and then <laughs> they've got, they go on a huge rampage. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and so, guys, what else do you have up your sleeve? What else is coming into the public domain that you're going to completely ruin for children next? Scott's next. Yeah, so I'm next. I'm directing Bambi the Reckoning, um, and that is shooting at the end of May, and Bambi is going to be a killing machine. Um, So, yeah, you can expect that to come. And then very shortly after, we've got Winnie the Pooh 2, which we're doing, and it's got five times the budget. More friends might be saying hello. And then we've got Peter Pan's Neverland Nightmare. But we're not just doing, like, things related to Disney. We have other stuff, too, that we've just not announced yet. Wow. Well, you guys are sick and twisted, and we thank you for sharing all of that with us. Really appreciate it, uh, Reese and Scott. Thank you very much. Let's bring in the panel now. 
Um, again, Natasha, as our, our resident grade school teacher, um, how disturbing is this? I, I'm disturbed. I'm disgusted. Um, I, I think we like seeing characters behaving badly. Like, there's something about that in the culture that could be entertaining. I would have liked a comedy. Like, give me Winnie the Pooh, you know, like, at Mardi Gras, you know, taking shots or something. I'm not sure that I love the slasher part. Um, my toddler will not be getting the Winnie the Pooh, like, stuffed animal. If we're if this is going to be the new face of Winnie the Pooh, I think I'm just going to cancel Winnie the Pooh. Right, but house. isn't that a bummer? Like, Winnie the Pooh will be ruined for future generations. Right, Doug? Well, if they watch this um, slasher film, which I, I urge them not to, <laughs> I mean, Winnie the Pooh is sort of sacrosanct, and any, anybody who has children knows what it is. But, you know, I'm more disturbed, that, not about the film, but about the copyright law of 95 right. years. I mean, it suddenly allows somebody to hijack Bambi, hijack Tarzan. But how, it's just designed that way, right? It's, it's designed just and it's within the, the law, so right. people are, are uh, waiting, you know, like uh, vultures for when um, um, great classics are, are suddenly public domain and they grab it. They do it with the music, too. But, um, you know, there's nothing to do. There's no legal recourse. And as they said, just don't watch it. But uh, uh, I find it... Um, I find it a, a waste of, of time, but that's just the way, you know, it's not, I'm, I'm wired. It's not, it's pretty arbitrary that 95 years should yeah. be when you stop having rights over your own work, especially in, you know, for artists who have already have trouble keeping, making money on their content. It's pretty depressing. Because first you were saying it's kind of awesome. Well, I was thinking, I was, <laughs> that didn't count because we weren't yeah, on. I know, I know. Well, I was saying as someone who manages other literary estates of relatives, you know, that you do spend a lot of time trying to see if you can get any cash out of the content. Um, but in this case, it's actually hurting the books that the Right, because it has. expires. So right. instead of just somebody coming to the family to say, can we use this and buy it from you, which right. I understand why that right. would be appealing, right. it is expired, and, and also, so it's free game. Right, and you can't imagine the family is thrilled that they're making a slasher movie with this childhood, you know. Of course. Yeah. Mike? The most disturbing thing to me was he said people that grew up with this 20 years ago that was 50 years ago for me. <laughs> that disturbed me more than anything else about this. That was 50 Calling years ago for age. me. Yeah, that yeah. was, you could see the generational difference. But, you know, again, I think culture reflects society. And there are going to be some people that love this. It'll be a niche. But more to what you're saying about the work, that's a more concern for people. When you have work like that that was such a classic, how they can change it. And maybe these right. kids will never see the original work. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone. Please stick with me presidents next, as you've never seen them before. Artificial intelligence technology is going to turn all 46 American presidents into cartoon characters. We'll show you. Okay, now a look at the latest developments in artificial intelligence technology holiday edition. Here are AI-generated cartoon presidents, all 46 presidents looking just like your favorite animated friends. And joining me on the phone is the man who created these, Dan Simborski. He's a senior writer at Fangraphs. Dan, thanks so much for being here. Why did you want to do this of the presidents? Well, it, it happened kind of organically. I didn't have any kind of 
grand artistic vision. I just like playing with photo algorithms, with text prediction. And it was kind of a boring Saturday morning. And since it was President's Day weekend, I just thought I would try it out and see what happened. Well, let's talk about that. So let's look at some specifically <laughs> and look at some close-ups here. So let's start with Joe Biden. How did you come up with these? Im- well, first of all, so, <laughs> what's happening on the upper left corner here where he's a blue monster? How did that happen? Well, these these algorithms are still kind of rudimentary, and when you give them directions like make a DreamWorks character, make a Pixar character, it has different, let's just say, interpretations of how to do that. So sometimes you get Herbert Hoover, and sometimes you get Herbert Hoover as a giant blue marshmallow. It's just <laughs> kind of the luck of the draw, and I did about 50 runs for each president to try to get one that at least looked sort of what I was sort of the way I was going for it. Uh, yeah, I like the impressionistic take on President Biden there. Uh, the, the, you know, the smiling blue monster there. All right, next, let's look at what it did for Bill Clinton. Maybe we can drop the banner so we can see the, uh, all of the different. Okay, so there are four very different um, looking images. One looks like a Muppet. So what did you plug in here? Well, I did ask for Pixar, but occasionally it thinks Pixar is Muppets. And uh, well, you had to give the photo AI some leeway since we're still kind of rudimentary. Just how far they've come in the last couple of years is pretty amazing. Uh, when you look back at some of the early uh, Dali stuff, it's very, very just rough compared to what we have. But sometimes you get a Muppet uh For George W. Bush, I had a Cyclops in one run for some reason. Uh <laughs> But why? I mean, why does it give you a Cyclops? (laughs) Well, a lot of these things work. They're stochastic. They sometimes you, quote unquote, roll an odd image, uh, depending on the parameter that you put in. There's a lot of randomness involved or you would get the same thing every time. Yeah. Uh, So you've got a lot of. Bill Clinton and usually in a sweater and occasionally you get a Muppet Bill Clinton or, <laughs> yeah. a, or a very strange, angry Bill Clinton. It's, it's just you never know what's going to happen when you play with one of these things. Let's look at Donald Trump, who you also got a strange, <laughs> angry, blue Donald Trump uh, on the left side there in, in one of them. And then my next favorite is um, Teddy Roosevelt, because it actually thought you meant as soon as we pop it up, Teddy Bear. Yeah, uh, about 10% of the images for Teddy Roosevelt were Teddy Roosevelt as a teddy bear. Uh, I also got a lot of images of, of Teddy Roosevelt as a weightlifter with, with, with bursting muscles like he was going to go into a street fight. Uh, so I guess that's kind of how the computers feel about Teddy Roosevelt, which <laughs> does make me want to learn even more about him. <laughs> that, that is interesting. So it, that's how it, AI perceives him. Uh, really interesting to hear that. Okay, so um, Dan, you also did something fun for us. So back with my <laughs> panel, we have Mike Broomhead, Molly Zhang, Fast, Natasha Alford, and Doug Brinkley. So um, Dan was nice enough to do this for us also. So Mike, would you like to see your AI computer-generated uh, sure cartoon? Sure. I think Why you do. I think you do want to. So let's show Mike Broomhead's picture right there. Isn't that that's kind of awesome. Now, Dan, he looks a little gruff and a little angry. Why did AI decide to this depiction of He did my... give me more hair. Yeah. I'm all right with that part. I think he came out pretty well. Yeah, not bad. Why, why do you think he made him sort of um, angry there? Well, generally speaking, uh, these algorithms kind of take 
I wouldn't say unique, but they take a certain they take certain characteristics and they kind of battle them up to twelve. Uh, they kind of homogenize everything else, and it's it's just really what the picture is, what the training images have, because uh, this particular model is trained on hundreds of millions of photos, so it's trying to kind of get an idea from what it's given. Uh, what I'm looking for. And you do get a lot of grumpiness. Uh, if you look at the president, <laughs> a lot of them look very unhappy to be there. Um, this, I think that, I mean, I can't tell which is which there, Mike. I mean, they're, they're, right. the likeliness is so phenomenal there. Okay, let's look at what you did for Molly. Let's look at what AI did for wow. Molly. Okay, look into your computer. Oh, no. Yeah, but look right here, Molly, into straight yes. into this. Oh, my gosh. That's pretty awesome. What do you think? I, I love it. I yeah. want it. It's very cool. I I, it's great. Isn't I that great? To be like that forever. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, any thought? Very quickly, Dan. Did you have any? Uh, did you come up with any images like that AI thought were just off base? <laughs> well, a lot of them were off base. You should see some of the outtakes for all of these. Oh, really? Uh, because again, yeah. it's 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 not a human doing it. Uh, it's you know artificial intelligence, and it's kind of enables someone like me bad. with no artistic skill because I draw stick figures still. It's, it's, it's very, very sad. Uh, yeah. But to really get what you want, you have to consult an artist. But uh-huh. have a little fun. You could use the, the AI for now. Oh, it's fantastic. I think that looks awesome. Okay, let's look at Natasha. Natasha, look into your... Does she look over here? Okay, look into your camera right here. And let's look at Natasha's AI computer-generated image. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. Look at that. That's Yours amazing. This is really pretty. Yeah. It yeah. looks like a, a young uh, Michelle Obama, maybe. I'll take yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. The hair, though. The hair is Yeah, the hair nice. is different. Um, okay, uh, Doug, let's look at yours. Oh, fantastic. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, look at that, Doug. Oh, my gosh. Do you like it? Um, yes, because I look skinnier than I think I really am. <laughs> so I'm going to take it. Uh, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, one last one. Let's see what you did with me. Okay, let me see. Oh, that's oh, that yeah. is good. Look at that. That's your new avatar for Twitter. Oh, These are all good. Yeah. I think it's good. I like it a lot. Dan, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for all of that. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for being here. That was fun. Great having you guys. And thanks so much for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.